Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host Icy Cedric, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. I hope you're enjoying this somewhat rainy and miserable August. As it, well, as I'm recording this, it is absolutely chucking it down, so that is lovely. Anyway, on with the show, because, you know, if I was talking about the weather, we would be here all day. Now, over here in the Fabulous Folklore family, we are no stranger to severed heads and we're all friends with those that make prophecies like that of Bran the Blessed, or Orpheus, whose head washed up on the island of Lesbos. But as it's magical month, we're going to delve into the mysteries of the brazen head. Now, this was actually a request from somebody on Twitter. So again, if ever you feel like there's something that you want me to look at, please just let me know and I'll do exactly that. Now, not going to lie, when I googled the brazen head, I pretty much got a whole load of pubs I was like, interesting thing for me to be looking at for Magical Month. But eventually, I did just plenty of digging, got into the books, got into the journal articles, and this is what I've come up with. So, the Brazen Head is not a pub. Well, it is, but it's not in this sense. It's actually a legendary occult item that dates to the late medieval and early modern period. Now, it's made of brass or bronze, hence brazen, and it's a male head, and it's supposed to be able to answer any question that's asked of it if it existed, and that is a whopping great if, then it was probably mechanical in nature. But as with many of the things that we look at over here, it's since developed a somewhat magical reputation, which makes it perfect for our investigations. So let's go and have a look at exactly what the brazen head is. Now, if you believe the 12th century chronicler William of Malmesbury, the first brazen head was actually made in the 10th century, and in his epic tome, History of the English Kings, William makes some somewhat surprising claims about Gerbert of Aurillac, the man who would become Pope Sylvester II. And this is one thing I absolutely love about medieval chroniclers. You read some of the stuff that they come up with and you're like, that has to be made up. You had to have known that that wasn't true. I think Geoffrey of Monmouth, was it him? He'd written something about a king who'd fallen in some magic mud and learned how to fly. But, you know, that that's kind of tabloid news level stuff now, but... Anyway, total tangent. Now, according to William, Gerbert went off to Spain to learn astrology from the Saracens. And as I explained in last week's episode about John Dee, medieval astrology, very, very different from today's newspaper horoscopes. Now, the Saracens are basically Muslims, essentially it's just the, the different names. And they were kind of at the heart of learning in this particular period. And if you went to learn from them, it was because they basically had all the knowledge. But according to William, learning from the Saracens wasn't enough for Gerbert, and he actually stole one of their grimoires of spells. And remember, this is an era when many of the magical texts were actually written in Arabic. But then William basically mixes up his theology, and then claims that Gerbert made a pact with the devil. And then it was because of this pact which explains how he became the Pope in 999. Anyway... William claimed that Gerbert basically went on to use this knowledge of astrology to build a head that could answer any yes or no question that you asked of it. Now, it could only speak when spoken to, which kind of makes me think a little bit of Alexa and the other voice assistants. 
But basically, it was something to do with the, the, the stars had aligned or something. And because of this use of astrology, that's why the head would work. Now, Maria Perez Cuervo does point out that William of Malmesbury was basically a Christian monk. So his writing can be seen as a piece of anti-Islamic propaganda because he considered the Saracens to be demonic, so therefore Gerbert became demonic by association. The head, as the result of this association, then becomes an occult symbol of this unholy knowledge. And remember, the word occult literally just means hidden. So Gerbert became remembered for all these supposedly occult adventures, not his actual achievements. And considering it was him who brought the abacus and Arabic numerals to the West, I think we should probably be remembering him for that, rather than apparently making some head that could answer any question, as long as you ask yes or no. But then we're going to move on to the 13th century. So this is basically the century after William's writing his tome. And you then suddenly get St. Albertus Magnus in the 13th century. And he went one better than those who would come after him, if you believe the legends. And according to the stories, he built a brass man, not just a brass head. And where other brazen heads would speak only when spoken to, his apparently chattered non-stop. Not going to lie, first time I read that, I just thought of C-3PO from Star Wars. And later on, the philosopher Thomas Aquinas was one of St. Albertus's disciples. And apparently he got so fed up of the chattering that he actually broke the automaton up again, like C-3PO. And meanwhile, the bishop Robert Grosseteste was a leading figure in maths and physics. This is a funny thing I find at the, at the time in, in this particular period in history, how many friars and monks and so on are teaching theology and doing religious things but then they're also teaching maths and physics and, and things like that it seems like obviously they're, they're trying to understand the world around them to get closer to god through maths anyway bishop grossetesta was also lecturing at oxford university and according to his legend he also made a brazen head to tell the future nobody ever actually explains how they make these brazen heads only that they do anyway the stories claim that Grossetesta used astral science, which I'm assuming is a variation on astrology. Now, in his story, the head did actually issue a cryptic prophecy, but it only did it while he was asleep, so he actually missed it. And if you're thinking the same way I do, how could anyone possibly know of this prophecy if nobody actually heard it? But anyway, that's just a side issue. We do need to bear in mind, however, that Grossetesta made plenty of attacks on the papacy and he basically had a proper go at the cardinals for their greed and corruption. So obviously, if you have somebody who's having a go at your your brethren, as it were, what's a really quick way in those days to discredit them? You associate them with the occult and hence the brazen head. Story came out through a poem, of all things. We're going to move forward a little bit, but not that much further to the philosopher and Franciscan monk Roger Bacon and he also allegedly made a brazen head in the 17th century and I say allegedly because the stories about it don't actually appear until many years later and there's actually a book the famous history of Friar Bacon which was written in the 16th century and in this apparently the head is actually just a replica of a real head. Now the story also goes on to claim that Bacon couldn't actually get it to talk so he had to ask the devil how to do it. And Satan's advice was to power it with the fumes of plants used in alchemical medicine. It's up to you how much you want to believe that story. It's incredibly far-fetched. And Bacon, much like Grossetesta, was much more of a mathematics kind of guy. He actually specialised in optics. 
and if he, he really believed in the value of philosophy and theology to understand the world around him. He was, a, much like Grosser Testa was quite critical of the papacy, Bacon was widely critical of university learning and he proposed lots of educational reforms which would basically change how people learned within academia. So again, bound to irritate quite a lot of influential people. Or was there more to the story? Well, one of the subjects that Bacon wanted to see introduced to the curriculum was alchemy. And his work in this area is predictably vague. Like most of his work, he's very, very, very heavy on the theory, quite light on the practice. And I can't help thinking that his reputation kind of exceeds reality a bit. He does end up with the nickname Dr. Mirabilis. Some people think that's because of his interest in magic. That's unlikely because it actually translates as wonderful teacher. But his interest in alchemy and subjects like even astronomy actually got him into fairly hot water. Now, Bacon, to be fair to him, did understand the somewhat tricky political climate of the day. And he tried to avoid claiming that astrology or celestial events or anything like that could impact anything that was happening on Earth. Because following these so-called experimental sciences could and would be denounced as magic. Now, the way he got around it was he tried to draw a line between magic, in inverted commas, which was basically demons, the occult, working with spirits, and so-called natural magic, which was basically physical phenomena. And what Bacon did was he tried to use otherwise natural explanations for seemingly magical events. So basically, he tried to prove that alchemy was actually science and obeyed the laws of nature. The closest science we would recognise to it is probably chemistry, but obviously even we realise that you cannot actually turn one element into another because of their chemical properties. But obviously Bacon didn't realise that because he was doing this in the 13th century. But still, he tried to claim that alchemy was even a part of medicine. And there was some some element to what he was saying. But basically, because it wasn't a complete and utter denunciation of magic, it, the kind of the mud stuck if you know what I mean. And that could absolutely explain why his magical reputation then lasted until the 17th century. And a lot of his scientific writings actually got condemned. So by the time you get to the Elizabethan period, people basically believed he was a sorcerer who used demons. And there's no evidence that he actually made a brazen head. And he did have a pension for brass astronomical clocks, apparently. And he even predicted lamps that never burned out. And you have to go, well, he wasn't wrong there. He also had a thing about flying machines and he talked about ships and other modes of transport that would have unusual methods of propulsion. But to be fair, da Vinci did that a couple of centuries later and everyone thought he was a genius. So it just basically shows it depends what time you're born in, really. But you're wondering why I'm talking about all this to do with astronomy and alchemy and so on in an episode about the brazen head. This is where it basically then gets political and it's with bacon. So bearing in mind, he's kicking around in the 13th century and the playwright Robert Greene wrote the play Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay, but he did that in the 16th century and he basically writes about this incident involving a brass head and in this play, Greene absolutely ignores alchemy altogether and instead claims Bacon was a necromancer. You know, it's a quick way to discredit an intellectual. You take something that they're doing that you don't quite understand and you just slap something else over the top of it. So thanks to the Reformation, you've now got the Catholics being painted as quite superstitious, quite gullible, and then you've got the Protestants on the other hand who are very clear-headed and rational. 
So Bacon, and bear in mind he was a friar who actually asked the Pope for support in his work, became the ultimate Catholic to hate. But if you then recast this basically educational reformer and mathematics theorist, is technically what, what Bacon was, if you then recast him as a black magician, it means that Green can attack the mysteries of Catholicism. So Bacon's not actually really necessarily that important. It's what he represents that's a problem. And for Green, Bacon's basically so useless that he actually sleeps through the only prophecy that he's had ever issues. And it says, time is, time was, time is past. Which again, okay. This basically goes on to become part of the legend, despite having been invented by Green. There are no stories from Bacon's actual time which says any of this ever happened. And what's quite interesting is plenty of the plot points that Green uses also appear in a poem by John Gower. And in Gower's poem, it's Grosseteste who builds the brazen head and sleeps through its prophecy. And Francis Seymour Stevenson actually points out that Green even sets his play in the place where Grosseteste was born. So you have to wonder why is he? Why is there so much conflation between these two people, and what they stood for? Now, what is it that binds all of these brazen head stories together? Well, on the one hand, they basically take these Arabic tales of severed human heads that utter prophecies. And Kevin Grandeur relates a legend about a 13th century English crusader. He wants to know about events back home, doesn't really have any way of finding out, so he hires someone who knows Saracen magic. And this magician digs up a human skull and uses his magic, and it tells him about Henry III's wars with the barons. And these kind of tales seem to move from the east to the west in medieval Europe. So obviously these these things all then come together as part of these brazen head stories. But on the other hand, if you look at all the players who are involved in these stories and all the people who allegedly made one, they're all associated with natural philosophy in Europe. And Ellie Truett explains that it was the promise of astral science, which was basically to be able to understand God's design written in the heavens, was that it basically then meant you had the key to all of the forms of natural knowledge. So essentially understanding astrology as it was understood then meant you could understand everything else and if you've then got somebody like Bacon coming along going well actually yeah we should study astrology and we should study philosophy and all these other things you know why not everything all works together and it's Lagrangeur that also suggested it was this connection between science and magic during the medieval and early modern period that actually gives rise to the legends because obviously science is not science as we know it, but it's starting to kind of look a little bit similar. And obviously magic is what we would recognise as just, you know, the occult. It's the connection between these two things. And it's the fact that all of these natural philosophers have either studied with Muslims, like Gerbert did, or they've studied Muslim sources. So again, they're kind of putting this fascination with the East, but also somewhat fear of the East onto these stories. And the the people that are picking are people who are daring to look at something a little bit different or trying to look outside of traditional models of knowledge. And it's basically this heady combination of occultism, science and superstition that turns the brazen head into this legendary object. But I should note they also become cautionary tales because in the story Gerbert dies soon after his head utters a prophecy about his own death because basically he worded the question wrong. 
and the heads of Grosser, Tester and Bacon both destroy themselves shortly after they make their predictions. And obviously St. Albertus loses his brass man to a disciple's fitted beak. Now, the apparent makers of these magical devices come to represent not the experimental nature of the fledgling sciences, but rather the superstitions associated with magic and the occult. And it's the writers of the Renaissance that reach backwards to smear them as foolish, rather than examining them as somewhat quaint and slightly naive early thinkers. But the funny thing is, when you then move forward to the 18th century, obviously bearing in mind all this foundation's been laid throughout the Elizabethan era, the link between the brazen head and gullibility was basically strengthened, and there's evidence of this in Daniel Defoe's fabulous novel, A Journal of the Plague Year, which he wrote in 1722, but it's actually set in 1665 during the Great Plague of London. And in those days, buildings didn't have numbers the way they do now, so you wouldn't go to, like, 20 St Mary's Axe or 15 Piccadilly. They would have signs hanging off the buildings, so you might live at the sign of the sun or whatever it may be. And according to Defoe, fortune tellers and astrologers actually hung brazen heads over the door to advertise their trade. Whether this is true or not, I don't know. But it's the fact that's what Defoe says to basically underline this link between fortune telling and these brazen heads. So basically, just to wrap this up, because obviously it's been quite another long episode again, and I am sorry. Uh, what do we make of all of this? Well, none of the stories of brazen heads are contemporary. So Gower and Green both tell their tall tales in fiction of Grosseteste and Bacon much, much later on, and neither monk is alive to dispute the claims, so they can't defend themselves. And it's basically the same with William of Malmesbury. He mentions automata and other weird phenomena elsewhere in his chronicles, so it's entirely possible that Gerbert's brazen head is just this fictitious leap of faith by somebody who's just got a really good imagination. And obviously the later writers are then piggybacking on something that he's already come up with. But essentially what it boils down to is these thinkers were all looking into areas of knowledge that were new, they weren't the established mode of doing things, and obviously in a lot of cases they were looking east. And this didn't sit well with a lot of people in the establishment, so obviously it was a good way to say, ah, look at them, aren't they silly, aren't they daft, and that stupid messing about with looking at fortune telling and so on and unfortunately the reputation stuck to the extent that when I mentioned on Facebook that I was doing this as a podcast and I mentioned alchemy and fortune telling automata the first comment that I got was about that awful Zoltar machine in Big Star and Tom Hanks so it just goes to show that even now we still have this weird fascination with machines that can tell the future and let's be honest What else are we going to use AI for? Anyway, that is the end of this week's episode. Apologies it went over a little bit. I do like to keep them to 15 minutes because I know you've got other things to do. But there's just so much to talk about where this stuff is concerned. Now, last week I did mention uh, I I, I do a psychogeography post at some point. I think I'm going to keep that for the beginning of September. And I'm going to round out Magical Month by actually looking at some stuff to do with alchemy. It's fascinating and we've mentioned it twice now, both this week and last week with the wonderful Dr. John Dee. So we'll have a look at alchemy next week and things like the Philosopher's Stone and stuff that's passed into popular culture in so many ways. But anyway, I'm going to leave it here. You know about Patreon and all that jazz. Feel free to tweet us if you want to suggest anything you'd like to see in future episodes. And otherwise, have a fabulous week and I will see you soon. Cheerio.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com, and that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images, and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead, and I'll see you soon. Cheerio!